live from London. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move. And here's your need to know. Confronting coronavirus. The World Health Organization holding an emergency meeting as the virus spreads. The price of privacy. Facebook facing a new reality following data scandals. And Tesla's turbo drive. The Scott storing pre-market as people earnings and deliveries beat. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move once again, where we are live from the city of London or just across from the city of London on the eve of Brexit. More on that coming right up in the show. But for now, I want to bring you up to speed with what we're seeing for the global price action. And I can tell you sentiment remains pretty fragile at this moment. U.S. futures indicating we'll see a lower open to market trade today. That despite some strong earnings, as I've mentioned already, from the likes of Tesla, but also Microsoft after the market closed yesterday. What about Europe as well? You can see it, a sea of red. All the majors down right now, over 1%. What about the commodities markets too? Oil, sharply lower. Both Brent and WTI off by more than 2% right now. A double whammy. U.S. inventories coming in greater than expected amid the global growth fears tied to the coronavirus threat too. The Asia session really felt it too. Stocks there pummeled overnight. The Hang Seng falling some 2.6%, adding to the 3% losses that we saw in Tuesday's session. Taiwan's stock market also playing catch-up here, losing some 5%. The first day of trade there since the Lunar New Year holiday. Chinese markets, of course, remain closed until next week. But we did see some action in the offshore currency, that weakening below that key seven level versus the US dollar. In terms of individual stocks, Asia carriers like China Southern, Cathay still losing ground in the session overnight. Tokyo listed chip stocks like Aventest falling 6.4%. Taiwan listed Foxconn, a key Apple manufacturer supplier in the region, fell almost 10% too. So much uncertainty about the short and the medium term impact here and what the latest, of course, will be from the WHO. Let's get to the drivers on this story. The coronavirus could be declared a global health emergency when the World Health Organization meets later today. The infection rate is rocketing. Almost 8,000 cases now and 170 deaths have been confirmed just in China alone. In Europe, more than 6,000 passengers are being held in a cruise ship off the coast of Italy amid fears of a case on board. More than 100 cases have been identified in at least 20 countries worldwide. David Culver is in Beijing for us. David, great to have you with us once again. The WHO until now has held off from calling this a, a global health emergency, but they have praised the, quote, massive efforts that the Chinese are making here. Talk us through the latest. That's right, Julia. And we know earlier this week, the head of the WHO was actually here in Beijing meeting with President Xi Jinping, discussing bringing international scientists to China to share and collaborate as they move forward with their research and hopefully sharing data so as to better understand how this disease transmits from one person to another. It's also important because they could then figure out what the effectiveness of a quarantine period would be. Right now, it's assessed at up to 14 days, two weeks. And we're seeing that put into place uh, as far as international communities are concerned and, and restricting people who have either traveled to Hubei province or to the city of Wuhan, the epicenter of all of this, and saying essentially, if you come into our country, you then have to wait at least 
two weeks before getting out of your self-quarantine. Those are some of the lighter restrictions, more serious ones also coming down. Meantime, we do know that Russia, according to state media there, is closing its far eastern border with China, so taking extreme measures. They also have suspended some of the tourism and the charter flights that come into China. And so moving forward with that. Now, it's interesting to note out of Hubei province in particular, which, as I said, is the source of all of this, there are some updates as far as how the government is handling things there. We're just hearing that as far as testing for the virus, which has been an issue that we've been hearing about over and over. My team and I here in Beijing touching base with healthcare workers there who say essentially that there are backlog of delays, people either getting tested, but then not getting the results right away, or some people not getting tested for days as it is. So they have now announced that the number of tests made available within Hubei province has jumped from 200 a day to 4,000. So the hope is that that would then allow for a more, honestly, uh, a realistic view as to how many people will be impacted by the coronavirus. Um, but as of now, people are still explaining uh, the struggle that they're going through and not knowing whether or not they have it. So the anticipation is that this would change that. Uh, meantime, there are also some regulations coming down from uh, public safety officials, to be quite frank. They are suggesting that anybody who may have the virus and who is not willingly treating themselves or even self-quarantining themselves and perhaps could be a transmitter, Julia, could face criminal charges if they spit in public or if they put themselves uh, at an area that would expose themselves essentially to someone else. So they're having to, to lay down the law, so to speak, uh, with some of these uh, restrictions that they're putting out there right now. Uh, going forward, we do anticipate yeah. that they're also trying to figure out who may have this virus. And, and they're doing that, we're hearing, through big data. In fact, they're looking at some of the, the railway data in particular. The railway authority announcing here that they're looking at who traveled to Wuhan, who traveled to Hubei province. And then they're trying to confirm who may have come into contact with those individuals so as to try to track the exposure, Julia. Yeah, I mean, you're painting such a picture here of the desperate attempts to contain this and to quarantine people and to identify cases. Fascinating. David, great to have you with us. And uh, thank you for keeping us up to speed with the latest there from Beijing. Well, the U.S. Federal Reserve, among those keeping a watchful eye on the potential economic impact of this coronavirus outbreak, Chair Jerome Powell called it a, quote, very serious issue, one which the central bank was, quote, very carefully monitoring. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, great to have you with us. He also said it's far too early to tell, and that's the key yeah. here. We just have to wait and watch just one of the risks that all the central banks here are, are having to contain and deal with. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we have some, I guess, not so recent uh, a guide here. When you look at 2002, 2003, the SARS epidemic, 800 people died there and Asian growth in general slowed because of that. It did get over that hump, but it was a shock to the system. But think of that 2002, 2003, that was 17, 18 years ago. China is much more, uh, uh, is much bigger as a part of the global economy and a part of the region right now. A lot has changed and the supply chains have changed. So they're just trying to gain out economists and and companies are trying to game out what this is going to mean you're already seeing the practical impact of course um you know you heard david culver talk about it you're talking about airlines you're talking about casinos you're talking about hotels all kinds of different companies uh, stopping their air travel or their you know their business travel to china and when they're when their employees are home they're telling them stay home for a couple weeks don't go into the office so there is a ripple effect across business even if you aren't physically uh in the country so they'll watch this the fed you know kept interest rates unchanged 
yesterday after three rate cuts last year. But U.S. growth, last year we just heard from the U.S. government, growth last year was 2.3%, Julia. That is the slowest growth of the Trump administration. That's not the supercharged growth that the president had promised. So the coronavirus and the Boeing problem, that'll shave a little bit off GDP in the U.S. at least. It'll probably have a ripple effect on, on suppliers as well. Those are two wrinkles for 2020 um, that come at a time when, you know, growth overall around the world and in the U.S., isn't quite as robust as it's been in recent years. Yeah, just as we were setting aside some of the trade tension fears, admittedly the tariffs remain, but we were at least hoping not to see a further ratcheting up in 2020. We've got other things to deal with here. Christine, just pull out for me the consumer in this mm-hmm. GDP number in the fourth sure. quarter, because yes, it's backward looking, but all the strength has been about the consumer in, in 2019 in the United States. What did we see in the data there and amid hopes that that can at least continue in, in 2020? It is still the consumer and it is also government spending that are the drivers here. Mm. Um, It's not the big business investment. And this is what is so interesting. It may become a political hot potato in this country, Julia, is because, you know, the president and his team promised for years that their tax cuts would be paid for by supercharged economic growth. So you don't have the supercharged economic growth to pay for the tax cuts and you have huge government spending and really holding up. I mean, GDP is fine. 2.3% is fine. But, you know, holding up the economy is the government and the consumer, not business, who got the big tax cuts. That could be a political problem this year. Yeah, watch this space. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Let's move on to our next driver, Tesla stock, soaring pre-market on strong fourth quarter numbers, including some record deliveries and the firm's first annual profit. Peter Valdez Tapina joining me now. Billions of dollars being added again to the market cap here for Tesla. What a year. It started out incredibly awkward, but what a strong finish. Talk us through your highlights here, Peter, and then we'll delve into some of the numbers more deeply. Well, probably some of the biggest highlights here are looking, are especially looking forward to next year when Tesla says, look, we're going to be able to easily beat the 500,000 cars we delivered this year. And next year, we're going to have the China factory fully up and running. They're opening a, a factory in Berlin. They're going to be adding the Tesla Model Y crossover. And uh, given the popularity, popularity of crossovers in the market, there's obviously a lot of big hopes pinned on that. So Tesla says, look, we're in the clear now. We're, uh, we're going to be able to fund our own operations from here on out and be a consistently profitable company, which is almost like a different Tesla from what we've seen up to now. I couldn't agree more, to be honest. And I think pivotal to the change in sentiment and the story is is what they've done in China and the 10 months between groundbreaking manufacturing facilities there and then delivering Model 3s. What did they have to say about those facilities and the impact or at least the potential impact of the the coronavirus here? Because that surely, at least in the short term, could be very important. Yes, and they said in the short term they're monitoring that, and here they are. Here's again speaking about a different Tesla. They actually opened that factory in Shanghai ahead of schedule and got it in production ahead of schedule. Something new for Tesla, and now they're hit with this. The whole country is hit with this, and the whole industry is hit with this. Right now, they said it's not going to have a big impact in the short term because the factory is only just getting going in the long term. It's not going to. But in the long term, they're going to have to just wait and see and 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 see how long this goes on before they can restart production, get things going. 
Yeah, certainly something to keep an eye on. But for now, I was running some numbers earlier, Peter. They now have a market cap of $104 billion. It's more than Ford, GM and Fiat Chrysler combined. Yes. They are the largest. largest, (laughs) It's amazing. This is the most valuable American car company by miles, the second most valuable car company in the world. And as we just said, they just had their first annual profit just now. So yes, it's, it's not it's, a car company, it's a tech company, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have to say, I'm a little <laughs> confused as to the stock value myself, but there you go. <laughs> Others aren't. We'll reconvene. Peter Valdez to Penner there. All right, shares of Facebook are plunging in pre-market trading despite an earnings beat. This after the social media giant reported its slowest ever revenue growth for the fourth quarter. Facebook's costs and expenses also jumped nearly 35% from a year ago. Claire Sebastian joins us on this. Claire, the numbers for me here quite fascinating. Users growing, increasing numbers of advertisers, monetizing versus a user count here. Great, but oh boy, the expenses here really spiking. And it's not over yet, Julia. The the CFO is saying that the uh, revenue growth could continue to decelerate uh, in this current quarter as they continue to have to spend uh, on all these various things. Uh, infrastructure, privacy uh, is a big one. He said also that the headwinds uh, from the global privacy regulations, the impact of that, uh, most of it has yet to be felt. So there's definitely more to come. One number that stood out for me uh, is headcount, Julia. That was up 26% uh, over the course of the year. So it's not only uh, technology and infrastructure, they're also spending uh, on more people. Facebook uh, obviously facing uh, investigations, uh, legal uh, issues, so that is all uh, expensive uh, as well. But these numbers, interesting because while it was the slowest revenue growth in the company's history, it did actually beat expectations. I think when you look at the reaction in the stock price today, you have to look at at the run-up that we've seen. Facebook grew 56% over the course of 2019. Uh, It's close to its record high, so I think some of that context is now built into the reaction today. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for all the criticisms, for all the concerns, I go back to the point that we were making here. One, people are still using more across the platforms that Facebook, the the WhatsApp, the Instagram, they're adding those. And even advertisers, for all the debate we have about the, the interference in elections, the concerns about content, more advertisers are flocking to them. So they're diversifying that base, too. Well, advertisers don't have a lot of options, don't forget, Julia. Facebook and Google pretty much uh, dominate the uh, online advertising market, but they are facing pressure. There was a lot of interest on the call about things like Instagram checkout, advertising uh, in stories. They are facing pressure to innovate because, of course, uh, they now have, uh, they say, about 2.9 billion people using one of their uh, family of products that includes Instagram and WhatsApp uh, over the course of a month. So while they they have this almost saturation in terms of global Internet users, they do have to find ways to make more money uh, out of the users and advertisers that they do have. But it was interesting when you look at the, the stance of Mark Zuckerberg uh, uh, during this earnings call, how he's evolved. He said that his goal over the next decade uh, is not to be liked, but to be understood. He says he's going to continue to stake out the controversial positions that he has when it comes to not fact-checking political ads, when it comes to encryption. Uh, and he says that if he communicates that clearly, he thinks that he'll be trusted more. I think that uh, remains to be seen, Javier. Yeah, I love that you pulled out that quote, 
doesn't need to be understood, just needs to get it right, quite frankly. And in the meantime, the share price goes up, but not today. Claire Sebastian, great to have you with us. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Today will be a day two of questions for senators in the impeachment trial of President Trump. Last night, the president's lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, argued that before an election, the president's personal interest and the national interest are the same thing. Every public official that I know believes that his election is in the public interest. And mostly you're right. Your election is in the public interest. And if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu met with Russian President Vladimir Putin to discuss the Middle East peace plan. Speaking in Moscow, Mr. Netanyahu described President Trump's plan as a new opportunity. He also thanked President Putin for releasing an American-Israeli backpacker imprisoned in Russia on drug charges. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here. You're watching First Move, but coming up, global markets continue to slide as the coronavirus continues to spread. We'll have analysis next. And Facebook falls. Rising costs give investors jitters. I'll speak to the author of Zucked, waking up to the Facebook catastrophe to get his take. We're back after this. Stay with us. You're with CNN. back to first move we are live in london and counting down to brexit tomorrow we're also watching global markets very closely here too as we mentioned before stocks lower on the coronavirus fears yet again u.s stocks set to fall around half a percent in fact at the open this morning european majors also down by well over one percent here the yield on the 10-year u.s treasury has fallen below 1.6 percent safe haven gold up around half a percent in trading today joining me now eric nelson he's the Group Chief Economist at Unicredit. Eric, fantastic to have you with us. It's so tough to quantify this. I can see the markets under pressure. There's real concerns. What are you thinking at this moment? Coronavirus fears. Uncertainty, right? Yeah. And and uh, I think way too much comfort in the market that we compare to the SARS episode where life is very different. The Chinese travel a lot more than they did in that period, about six times more. Uh, it spread, it has spread on a per date from the re re relation that it was there much, much faster, but the death rate is lower. So, uh, but this is a, this is ultimately, unless it's the ultimate disaster, hopefully not. It's a story of fear, right? And, and people protecting themselves. So travel comes down, movements come down, people still don't go to the shop to the same extent. So we are uh, a little bit more worried. That's quite fascinating, actually, because you made some great points there that actually there's been an explosion in travel in relative trade, actually, since 2003 with exactly. the SARS virus. If we look at the economic impact on China, then it was a hit to GDP that year of, I believe, 0.8% of GDP. So what you're saying is just even on a relative basis, the, the spread, the, the acceleration in spreading of this and the sheer growth in, in travel and all the associated yeah. impact, it could be a lot bigger than that. It could. Also remember that coming into the SARS crisis, China GDP expanded by about 10%. Yes. Now it's about 6 So you take this number down and, and believe it or not, the share of private consumption in China is actually bigger now than then yeah, because it say, only started quite late. The so, economy's far yeah, bigger. Yeah. Yes, of course, right? So the um, so I 
we just don't know. I all I, my point was simply that I, I I worry that the markets take a little bit too much comfort in just extrapolating from SARS, and I I think there are too many uncertainties. Life has changed too much. So hopefully we see the peak soon. Or but but it's. Um, it's uncertainty, right? And We're waiting for the World Health Organization to um, to give their assessment, or at least their latest assessment, later today. From an investor perspective, do you think them saying, look, okay, now this is a global health emergency and we're designating that will be sort of positive or negative for risk assets, considering you're saying you're worried about a degree of complacency here among investors? Yeah, I think I think from an, if I were investing, what we say to all our clients, I would say, let's, let's see the actual number of contagion coming down and sort of, or the, and the death rate sort of coming down, and people started to feel a little bit less. Uh, it's very important if the WHO come out and say these things. If the Chinese really contain people, and in, in a only the Chinese can do in a sense, uh, maybe they start to help in that that sense. But until we see where this thing goes, um, uh, how contagious it is, uh, the uh, incubation periods, how contagious are they in that period, all these uncertainties, um, until we get clarity on this, you have to be worried. Yeah, I want to weave it into your broader picture here because when I look at your forecast for 2020, you're actually far more cautious than most other analysts, even to the point of perhaps seeing the Federal Reserve cutting four times this year. Yeah. <laughs> How? How do we get from where we are today, admittedly in light of the conversation we yes. just had, to uh, the Federal Reserve here really being yeah. very cautious about, yeah. about the growth outlook? And how do they tell us, after everything they tell us, oh. that, that life has changed? So our, our fundamental disagreement with consensus is that we think the U.S. economy is more vulnerable than, than most people. Why? Uh, predominantly because it's all dependent on private consumption. <laughs> and that segment last year, in 2019, that was about two-thirds or whatever contribution to GDP from, from fiscal policy is petering out because the end of the fiscal. So the question is how robust are the consumers? And if they get nervous, there's a problem. If labor might start to ease, which we think it is about to do, openings are coming down quite significantly. Mm. There are the corporate earnings. If you take a model on, on corporate earnings and extrapolate or, or estimate the, the probability of recession, it's about two-thirds probability of a recession within about a year. Wow. So it's so there's a lot of vulnerability underlying, underlying these numbers. And, and I just think that it's, it's not a given, but it's not a 50-50 chance. It's whether we get to zero or we get to a quarter percent or something, end of the year, I don't know. But it's... Uh I mean, the markets are trading very close to record highs in the United States. Yeah. The idea that the Federal Reserve can go from, to your point, doing what it's doing right now to then starting to cut and communicating its concern, yeah. um, there's what, a risk of panic. Yeah, and what do people do then? How do you, if suddenly the Fed comes out, but 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 again, I mean, look, you, you quoted before the, the, the yields on, on, on treasuries and so they, they are starting to price a bigger probability and also. And that's very important. The bond yes. market's telling us a different story that's here. That's right, that's right. And then the stock market. And I'm buying more into that story. I think the market is more right than, than the consensus of analysts here. And just very quickly, because we have around 30 seconds, the CEO survey from PwC, yeah. corporates, CEOs are very pessimistic at this moment. Record stunning, levels. Stunning, stunning. So it's and worth listening to the noises here. That's the survey has like 1,500 CEOs around the world has switched within two years from record optimistic to record pessimistic. Same picture we hear from all corporate clients around Europe, people are nervous, nervous about trade, nervous about regulation and, and life in general. And now comes the virus on top. So it's not a, and with all that uncertainty and on discomfort, that's not usually good for growth. No, it's going to be fascinating to watch. But your message here, I think, is just be a little bit perhaps more cautious than 
and yeah. markets reflect. Yeah. Eric, great to have you with us. Eric Good Nelson there, Group Chief Economist at Unicredit. You're watching First Move. The opening bell back in our native home in New York is up next. Stay with us. We're back after this. first move live from London. You are looking at the opening bell over at the New York Stock Exchange this morning. All the fist pumping and jumping in the world, not managing to lift these markets. We have got a weaker open for US stock markets this morning. This is the number of coronavirus cases in China rises to almost 8,000. We're also seeing sharp losses, of course, as we've mentioned over in Europe as well. A real degree of nervousness, I think, for investors at this moment here in the UK to the UK Bank of England, keeping interest rates steady today. Odds were around 50-50 actually that they would cut a further time. It was Mark Carney's last meeting as the Bank of England governor. He warned that the UK's level of growth will slow following Friday's official Brexit. The pound meanwhile rallying up more than half a percent in the session. Let's take a look at the global movers this morning too. Coca-Cola is in focus. Their shares are rising. Earnings matching expectations, but revenues beat estimates. Uh, what else? Microsoft also in focus this morning too. They beat on both the top and the bottom lines and they raised guidance as well. I've just realized I'm not showing you any of the stocks that I'm mentioning. So if we can get some of these, we shall. But right now I'm showing you some I'm showing you some other ones. It's live TV. Tesla is also rallying too after posting its first annual profit. Facebook also sharply lower as we discussed. Fourth quarter results topped expectations. However, the company reported its slowest ever revenue growth. Investors are also concerned about Facebook's rising costs and its expenses. Elevation Partners co-founder Roger McNamee joins us now. He's also the author of Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. Great to have you with us, sir. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Roger, what do you make of the numbers here? Because we did see advertisers increasing quite dramatically, the monetization in terms of level of users rising too, but oh boy, costs increasing. So, Is that a good sign from your perspective? So Julia, from an investor's perspective, the good news is entirely in the fact that Facebook remains a unique and incredibly valuable resource for advertisers. It is also, I think, relative to what you get, a relatively cheap stock. The bad news, though, is a much longer list. It wasn't just earnings yesterday. The second thing that came out was a decision in Illinois, a $550 million judgment settlement, basically, against Facebook relative to biometric data, which they had been taking without permission. And Illinois' new privacy law basically created the window for this. And I think it signals the larger issues for Facebook. You can't just look at it as though the numbers are the whole story. Regulations coming, as you know, you're in Europe right now, the, global, uh, the general data protection regulation has radically altered the whole world view towards privacy. And in many territories, the United Kingdom, the United States, and some parts of Asia, there are 
moves afoot that are going to make the business more difficult, not just for Facebook, but also for Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and other people who play with that advertising-based business model. You know, I have two problems with that, though, and it looks like we're far more likely to get sporadic state-by-state -state regulation in the United States than actually something, no, at least in true. the interim, at the federal level. But two, the fines that they're getting are peanuts relative to the money that they're generating here. It's no, not Julie, enough, I Roger. Think that's Would you agree? No, that is exactly correct. In fact, I think, in a sense, the reason why you have to pay attention to smaller judgments is that these companies are fully automated. They want to behave the same way globally. And so, in a sense, they have to adjust all their systems to whatever the most severe form of regulation is. So if you get different regulations in different territories, they're not going to try to tune in each territory for that local market uh, unless the difference is really dramatic. And so what you're going to see, I think, is as happened with GDPR, that they take a global approach that at least leans in that direction. And if you add all that up and you realize that that is a trend, from an investor point of view, it just says the overhang and the incremental costs of compliance are going to be rising for the foreseeable future. And as an investor, I think you have to look at that. I also think the US presidential election has a huge impact because Facebook is a tool that Donald Trump is using very effectively in his reelection campaign. If he's reelected, that is probably a much better outcome for Facebook than if he's not. But it's not obvious to me that Donald Trump being reelected is a thing that's good for markets or good for investors. And so you have these really difficult, I think, analytical things because they're binary. Yeah, but you started by saying, though, that the, the stock on a relative basis is undervalued here. So to go back to your point that even if we see and even if the U.S. president loses the 2020 election, is the stock still undervalued here? And is it still a reason to hold? Because I know you still own yeah. Facebook, I believe. Well, so, so, Julie, here's what I think is the big problem in all of this for any kind of investor looking at it, is that this has been the greatest industry the tech, you know, advertising supported tech platforms have been the best thing for investors for years. And we're at this valuation level now that's basically as recently as two days ago was records across the board. And if you were to have a significant correction here, it would not be a surprise in any way at all. And so I just think for investors, you have to look at these things with a great deal of caution, recognizing there will be better points of entry than today. And, you know, I look at this as an activist who's been trying to help Facebook, trying to help Google look at the business and recognize that some of the business practices that they've had are just too harmful for society. I think the tech platforms are a little bit today, Julia, where the chemicals industry was in 1960 when they were still pouring mercury and other waste products into fresh water. You know, that kind of thing had to stop. Society values technology too highly to allow these guys to do so much damage. And so that's going to change. The margins are going to come down structurally. And we're going to have to see what that looks like before we know what is really cheap. Roger, I, I completely agree with you on all this, but you know you and I have had this debate before and I have an issue with the word activist when Mark Zuckerberg has the uh, majority of the votes here. But something that he I'm said with yesterday you, Julie, you're right. I, stuck I mean, out to me. I, <laughs> I, know. I make a lot well, of I'm noise. It's not it. clear I have any impact. <laughs> 
Oh, no, we're trying, though. Um, his quote said, my goal for this century is not to be liked, it's to be understood, because in order to be trusted, people need to know what you stand for. It was an interesting quote for me, Roger, because if it's not ethics, if it's not privacy, if it's not damage to, to democracy and interference in elections, what makes investors like yourself sell here and be a real activist, she says so with a raised eyebrow. Yeah, so, so Julia, I think the fundamental issue here is that Mark, as well as the founders of Facebook, they're engineers at heart. And so in their mind, they look at things in an engineering mentality. So for them, efficiency is the value that they optimize for. And remember, in any kind of liberal democracy, so democracy like the United Kingdom, like Western Europe, like the United States, we value the enlightenment things of self-determination. We value democracy. And those things are inherently inefficient. And at the moment, the business model of Facebook and Google is in conflict with democracy and self-determination. And it's not because these guys are bad, bad guys. It's just they have a different way of looking at the world. And I, my goal as an activist is just to have conversations about that, just to make sure that people understand that that's really what we're talking about here. And, you know, I think it's fine for Mark to want people to understand him. I think I understand him pretty well. I respect him enormously. I just happen to disagree with the values he's aiming for. Profits before privacy. Roger McNamee. Thank Julia, you for putting you're up fantastic. With me. It's always no, a pleasure. No, I think you're the best. You're the best. <laughs> I look you. forward to being on again. Take Thank care. You. you can come back. Thank you, sir. All right, we have to wrap it up there. But when we returned, it was the night before Brexit when all through the Houses of Parliament, not an MP is stirring. Yes, yes, yes. You get the drift. We've got one day to go until Britain leaves the EU. Former Conservative Party Chairman Michael Howard, Lord Michael Howard, will be here. Stay with us. That's after this. move one day to go until Britain finally bows out of the European Union. Day-to-day -day life won't change much outwardly as the UK enters a transition period with a deal in hand. But there were emotional scenes in the European Parliament on Wednesday with MEPs breaking into a rendition of the famous Scottish folk song Old Lang I and roughly translates to Times Gone By. I'm joined by Lord Michael Howard, the former Conservative Party leader and former UK Home Secretary. We sing that at Christmas as well. So fantastic to have you with us. Thank you. We know things won't change in the interim, but what does this day mean to you? It's Freedom Day. Freedom Day. Freedom Day. <laughs> we will be taking back control, as you say, not immediately, but we will be taking back control of our laws, our money and our borders. And uh, that's, a, that's a great thing. The theory sounds good. The practice has been far more difficult than that throughout this process. Do you think it gets more easy or, or harder, actually, over the next 10 months? The clock is ticking once again. It can't be harder than the miserable last really? three and a half years. <laughs> That's a bold call. Where, where you know, Parliament was, was racked by indecision and vacillation. But we have a new Parliament and a new Prime Minister, and there is a new determination to push on and get things done. So I think we'll have this deal done within the year and then we'll be able to make trade deals with other countries in the world. The rest of the world is growing at a faster rate than the European Union. So there are great opportunities awaiting us. You make an interesting point, though, about speed of execution and not having to mess around and debate to a certain degree because this government is now actually very powerful. Is selling a deal to the public, even if it's 
not necessarily a great deal or economically as good as being closer to the single market. Is that part of being a good politician here? The public want to get things done. Yes. Overwhelmingly want to get it done. So I, you know, I don't think it will be too difficult to sell the deal to the public. Of course, the proof will be in the pudding. And so when the deal is done, um, if, as I believe, our economy would grow and prosper and we'll take advantage of all these opportunities, everyone would be happy. If, if the moaners and the scaremongers are right, I don't think they are, and we run into economic difficulties, well, there'll be problems. But I don't think that's going to happen. How long does the honeymoon period for Boris Johnson last before people get frustrated with that? Has he got until the end of this transition period? He's got as long as things are going well. <laughs> if things are going well, the honeymoon period will last. And if they're not, it won't. You made an interesting point about the Scottish nationalists and actually if Brexit goes perhaps better than some of the doom-mongers think, they might be convinced that Brexit is a good deal for, for Scotland and to remain... As part. It will be a good deal for Scotland. As long as Scotland remains part of the United Kingdom, it will benefit from all the trade deals we'll be doing with the rest of the world, from all the, from all the opportunities that are opening up Can for they us. afford to leave anyway, or is that just a moot point at this stage? I don't think they can. I mean, if you look at the figures, if you look at the size of their budget deficit, uh, they'd have to join the euro, which I don't think they're terribly keen on. I, I, I don't think they can. I've got a quote from uh, Margaret Thatcher in 1975 regarding the European community she said, if Britain were to withdraw, we might imagine we could regain complete national sovereignty, but it would in fact be an illusion. Lives would be increasingly influenced by the EEC, yet we would have no say in the decisions which would vitally affect us. What's changed? Everything. Why? Everything has changed. She said that, 1975, that was at the time of the referendum as to whether we should stay in the European Economic Community. I campaigned for us to stay in. I know. It was an economic community. Now, it's a political entity. There is a great drive towards creating something resembling a United States of Europe. Yes. And um, that's not what we want to be part of. You see it as an anchor rather than something cohesive that lifts all boats here. Oh, it's worse than an anchor. Anchors are, you know, quite good things in their place. <laughs> <laughs> you floating away in a drift. Yeah, there's a lot of resent <laughs> having an anchor. No, I think that there are too many rules and regulations, um, many of which we have little say over, and we are going to be better off on our own. Had the European Union been prepared to respond positively to David Cameron's attempt to reform it, Everything would have been different. I'd have been on the other side in the referendum right. campaign. And I think the other side would have won the, the referendum campaign. But because the European Union made it absolutely clear they weren't prepared to budge, they weren't prepared to reform, they weren't prepared to move, much better are. off outside than in an unreformed European Union. Yeah, bend before you break. Lord Michael Howard, sir, thank, thank you, you so much. Lord Michael Howard there, the former Conservative Party leader. Now... It's a long way from chilly London to the more temperate climate of Mauritius. And that's where we find innovation used to tackle problems with the world's food supply. And in this case, it all begins with some bees. Listen in. My name is Zuberi Mabukas. I am Mauritian and I'm a faculty member in the Electrical Power Systems Engineering Program at the African Leadership College. So two years ago, I was giving a guest lecture to some MBA students, and this is where I met uh, this uh, guy named Terence. And he had this 
very passionate project about bee conservation on the continent. And as we spoke more about it, uh, we identified potential useful technology in there. And that's where it immediately clicked that this was an ideal opportunity for my undergraduate students uh, back here in Mauritius. First thing we did was we actually went to Black River. We met a beekeeper to understand what it is that they actually need. Um, and this is where we started picturing and understanding more about the inner workings of a hive and what kind of parameters uh, beekeepers would actually like to track. And based on this, these fundamental requirements, we go to the drawing boards and we start tracking, okay, what sensors are gonna be able to do that? What processor are we gonna use? So we start basically from the outcome that we want and backtrack from there. Thanks so much. Uh, now the end vision of this project is a future where we have tech enabled the beekeeping industry in Africa. Bees are critical to pollination, which is the fundamental process for the food chain for life on the planet. So very often when people hear the word innovation, especially in the engineering space, they tend to think of state-of-the-art, high-tech, etc. Uh, I would say that innovation doesn't always have to be high-tech. And in our case, actually, quite the opposite. What we're trying to do here is minimal design. The fundamental goal is to have this spread and deployed across Africa. So we want to make it affordable for the African farmer. So what we're trying to do is instead of over-engineering it, trying to look at off-the-shelf components and finding the right selection that can work together to have an affordable device. So that's where the innovation is for me personally. Yeah, then you put it wherever you think is necessary. As an educator, however, I see different kind of innovation also applicable to this project, which is the way in which we are teaching the students. The students who work on this project work on it not just for a technical experience, but because they were passionate about the outcome of it. They were passionate about conservation. You're watching First Move. We'll be back right after this. Don't move a muscle. Welcome back to First Move. Let's bring it back to markets here. I showed you earlier and I want to show you again oil down sharply. The fear that the coronavirus will slow economic growth, global economic growth playing out here. Over the last month, the price was already falling with the supply gut driving down prices. Now concerned about the virus accelerating that downward pressure. John Defterius is here. We must stop meeting like this, John. Yes, from Davos from, to the I banks know, of the town. I know. Let's know here. Talk about the impact here because there's a double whammy. You've been describing mm. U.S. inventories higher than expected and, of course, the uncertainty here created by falling oil demand as a result of the coronavirus. Well, uh, coming into this, I think we're underestimated, is the past prologue. I mean, the yeah. habit in the markets is to go back to the SARS uh, threat of 2002 and three, and the natural thing is to say, okay, that was a 2% drop in the quarter, but from a much higher base, by the way, 99% right. down to 7%. 6%, a lot of people don't believe that number, down to 4%. Uh, and this would be quite a shock. When I'm looking at road traffic, for example, airline passengers, even the ministries are suggesting in China, we're seeing drops of 30, 40, 50%. So we did have that inventory build in oil, of course, but this is really about future demand in China. Early estimates are saying that demand will go down a million barrels a day. That's 10% of their supplies. Worst case scenario from plants is suggesting a 25% drop in oil demand. Now, there was some discussion with OPEC wow. Plus 
that they're going to meet March 5th, and then they may back that up into February. Sources I spoke to in the last hour before I came up with you were saying, uh, we're not panicking just yet, but they're looking at the crystal ball. And when we had the discussion at the beginning of January, of $70 a barrel on Brent, yes. and we're just above 58 right now. So they thought they're going to go into this easy period of the first quarter, not have to make a decision. And now it could be China that provides that shock, Julia. I mean, we were just talking to Eric Nilsson from Unicredit earlier, and he said, and he was making the comparison that the SARS adjustment here is irrelevant because the scale of travel mm. of infrastructure here and, and the movement from China is six times the size it was back in 2003 and he believes we're underestimating the impact here. Well, I 100% agree with it. Yeah. $14 trillion economy and the original belief in the World Trade Organization was that Southeast Asian economies or Far East Asian economies get swamped by China. Actually, they benefited from China, but now we have to think about the supply chains for South Korea, Japan, Southeast Asia, Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia. They're all really dependent on China. One thing that's overlooked, what do you do with the workers? If they're parked at home, right. consumer spending is going to collapse. Do you continue to pay people if you're telling them to get off of work? That's going to hit the bottom lines of the companies. And then we have to think in a broader context. I know, you know, being based in the Middle East, they've been reaching out to the Chinese and saying, we want you to come to the Middle East and North Africa, Jordan, Egypt, you know, the hubs of Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Qatar. And then you have to think of Italy and China, you know, going to Greece. I mean, I was at Christmas in Italy, swarms of Chinese yes. and they welcomed them and they're spending and they like to have them. We have to think of the knock-on effect. And I think this is not a comparison to SARS, but it's China in 2020. Yeah, the, the ripple effect here oh, of China on the way down is very, very dangerous. Mm. John Defterius, great Thanks. to have you with us. Thank you for that. That just about wraps up the show. I'm Julia Chesley. You can listen to our podcast on cnn.com slash podcast. For now, though, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.